You're listening to the weekly sermon from Antioch East Baptist Church, located in Magnolia, Arkansas. For more information about our faith and local congregation, visit AntiochEast.com. Turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And let's stand together in reverence to the reading of God's Word one more time. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, you know, I don't know. We have a few folks that are welders in the building. And we have electricians. We have a lot of folks who have a lot of uh, different hobbies and, and jobs in, in your life. And, and with every hobby and job and every human activity, there comes a highlight. A highlight. I want to tell you something. I've reached in my preaching career, I am beginning my highlight. I am excited about preaching this great and wonderful book of Romans. Now, I know that all of Scripture is given by inspiration. All of it is inspired of God. But this book has been used by God to do so much in the last 2,000 years You'll hear some of it. This is a highlight of every preacher's preaching career, and that is that that's a serious preacher about expositional preaching is to preach through the blessed book of Romans, of Romans. And this morning is just an introduction to the book, just an introduction. I hope to be able to whet your appetite. So here we go, the technical information. Let me give you a little bit of technical information about the book of Romans. And by the way, we will be going back over these verses later in an expositional way, verse word by word, but this is just an introduction to the whole book. Uh, Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth, we believe. Matter of fact, I don't think that's disputed. Uh, he references Phoebe. He does that in Romans 16.1 where it says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria. Now that reference to Centuria is a reference to Corinth. The port of Corinth was called Centuria. And then also a reference to Gaius and Erastus. These were two men apparently in uh, here in Corinth. In Romans 16.23, uh, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, in other words, the church at Corinth, I guess, was meeting in his house. He greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And 
Cortes' brother. But these two men we know were in and from the city of Corinth. So we believe that Paul, on his third missionary journey, was writing from Corinth this great book to the believers in Rome. It was written towards the end of his third missionary journey, around 56 A.D., we believe. It was written to, and it just says, the church at Rome. These were Christians Paul had never met, but he greatly desired to be with them. He had never met these folks. He'd never been to Rome. He'd been trying to get there. He's still trying to get there. He wanted to meet them. And and to be honest with you, not much was known about this church. I'll get to that in just a minute. But Romans 1.11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. He said, I I can't wait to get there, and let's just talk about Jesus. I just can't wait. And then we find in Romans 1.15, he says, So as much as in me is... He says, from the very bottom of my toenail to the top of my head, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And then in chapter 15, verse 32, he says again, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So he wrote this to a church that had formed in Rome. He didn't form it. We have no report of the church being started there, but it was probably started from converts on the day of Pentecost. A bunch of people were saved on the day of Pentecost, and they were proselytes from other lands, and they were there to worship. The whole world had converged on Jerusalem because it was Passover, and they were from other lands, and surely some from Rome, and they got saved, and they went back. But there was a church. It was established. It was going, and apparently a good church because he doesn't write to correct much stuff. He just He's trying to teach them some things, and he's excited about them. Most of all of the great revivals, now listen to me, most of all the great revivals you studied in high school or that you read about in books and and the great reformation of the 1500s, in the history of the church, all the revivals and reformations in the history of the church have been directly related to the reading and studying and preaching of the book of Romans. I don't mean that in general. I mean that specifically. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Now you listen to this. This I've already gotten chill bumps and I haven't even read the whole thing and I've read it a hundred times. He said, I'd read it and study it. He was a monk, a Catholic monk, and he studied the book of Romans, and he said, nothing stood in my way of understanding this epistle but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. (laughs) It is not by you being righteous that you're saved. It's by him being righteous and he gives you his righteousness. 
Thereupon, Martin Luther says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors of paradise. The whole of Scripture took a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God, now listen to what he says, it had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. He was angry at God. He hated God because he wanted to know God. He wanted to be right with God. But how in the world the dilemma was, how can a man be right with God because he's righteous being like I am? He said this also, speaking of the book of Romans, it is the chiefest part of the New Testament and a very purest gospel. John Wesley, the the great founder of the Methodist movement, He said, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldergate Street, this is in England, I believe, where one of the reading, one was reading Luther, Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. So he was reading the teaching of Martin Luther on the book of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Calvin wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Did you hear that? He's talking about this book. Listen to what he says. When anybody gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scriptures. I agree with that. William Tyndale said, This epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. And the most pure evangeline, that is to say, glad tidings, and that we call gospel, and also a light and a way unto the whole scripture. I think it meet that every Christian man, every Christian man, not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein even more continually, as with the daily bread of the soul. He says, every man in the church ought to have this book memorized. No man verily can read it too oft, study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. And the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the more precious things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth therein. And I had to put MacArthur in there. John MacArthur said, It has been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. The book of Romans took a Bedford tinker like John Bunyan and turned him into a spiritual giant and literary master who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress and The Holy War. That's from the reading of the book of Romans alone the epistle quotes the Old Testament you want to know the Old Testament and the meaning of it read Romans it quotes the Old Testament 57 times more than any other New Testament book 
It repeatedly uses key words like God 154 times, law 77 times, Christ 66 times, sin 45 times, the word Lord 44 times, and the word faith 40 times, not counting when it uses the word believe. Romans is the most exhaustive treatment of the gospel in the canon of Scripture. If this were the only epistle that Paul ever wrote, it would be enough to make him considered the most important New Testament author. This book alone. That's all an introduction to the introduction. Let me give you a few things. Number one, we notice in verses 1 through 7, just a few things. We notice the author, Paul, a bondservant. Now, I want you to know this word bondservant is the word doulos. It means slave. That's all it means. It just means slave. But the word doulos does not mean bondservant. This is a bad translation here where it says bondservant. And I think some just say servant. That's getting closer. But I want you to know something. A servant works for wages. A servant works for wages. We still have servants today, but they work for wages. You should pay them a fair amount. So they're not owned by you. They can quit whatever they want to, and they can negotiate the price or whatever, but a slave is different, and we know the history. It's a negative history with our country about slavery, but even the Old Testament had a system of slavery, and part of that system was what they called bond slavery, which was if you were a slave in a, in a family, after so many years, you were supposed to be freed. It was voluntary, and then you went in it, you couldn't get away from it. You were owned by that family or that man or whoever owned you. After seven years, you were set free. You had to be set free. But you could say, I like my situation here. I like this, these people that I'm working for. I want to stay with them. They've become like my family, which happened many times in the Jewish culture. And so what they do is they take you to the city gate. They would take the ear of the slave, put it against the wood, take a, a bore, and bore a hole through their ear. They would pierce their ear, okay? Now, it's very painful, but that's what they'd have to go through. And that was a mark that they no longer owned themselves. They, no longer, they gave up all freedom. And for the rest of their life, they were a slave and a property of that family or that person who owned them. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know. This may put a bad taste in your mouth. Well, so let it be. You're going to be a slave of somebody, either Satan or God. Now, which do you want? Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We love that, but now don't stop there. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and what? My burden is light. And my friend, you and I are slaves of Jesus Christ. If you have given your life to Christ, you are his. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You've been brought with a price, bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are Christ. And you may, you may have this idea. I'm no man's slave. I, I'm not going to answer anybody. I do what I want to. Well, if you get saved, you won't think that way. You get saved and you will willingly become the property of Jesus Christ. Because in this system, and let me just tell you, slaves become children. Slaves inherit the master's house. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
But if you're not his, let me tell you something. Everyone usually gets enslaved by a greater enemy. And your greater enemy is Satan and he will have you. He will have you. But so will Jesus. He's a bondservant, it says there. He's a slave of Christ. I am all of his. And Paul said, he could say through this, and maybe when he said it, he remembered as he persecuted Jesus and the church. Not Jesus personally, but he persecuted the church. He would kill anybody if he could have that named the name of Christ. He consented to the death of, of Stephen as they stoned Stephen to death for believing and preaching Jesus. It was Saul who later would become Paul that was holding the coats of the people, dashing that man to death. And he consented to it. Matter of fact, and it didn't make him feel bad. It revved him up. And he was going on to Damascus with letters so that he could do the same thing to other believers. And then all of a sudden, a light shone from heaven. The light of grace. The light of mercy. The light of righteousness. It was Jesus. And Jesus changed him on that road and saved him. And, and as zealous as he had been against Christ, he became twice as zealous for Christ. The man was just wrapped up in Jesus. Do you understand all the things that Paul went through to preach the gospel to people in the darkest places of the world that he could reach? Beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and snake bites and, and prisoned over and over and again. He had to flee nearly from every city he went to because they eventually, the religious people usually started and then the government would chase him to the next town. One historian tells us that his appearance was bad anyway. He was a, uh, well, this was a good thing. He was a short man, and he was bald, and, and, and he had a, some say he had a bad eye disease. We find some of that from Scripture, and that, uh, and that his, from his many beatings and imprisonments, that he just looked monstrous. Some people say that. By the end of his ministry, the scars were so visible on his body and his face from being beat for the cause of Christ. That's the man that wrote this book. A slave of Christ. And then it says, Paul the apostle. Look at this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now this is a pretty big claim. He's claiming to be uh, a, a, a very... There's only 13 of them, people. If you see a guy on TV or anywhere claims to be an apostle, he's a demon. I mean, not, not literally a demon, but he's probably controlled by one. He's a liar at best. He's a liar. The word apostle means one sent with a message. Now, by the way, everybody's an apostle in that sense. Everybody's a preacher. Everybody should be a deacon. Amen? Everybody ought to be a servant. Everybody ought to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And everybody ought to, has been called by God to send the message out. But there's offices, and the office of an apostle, there's only 12 to the Jews, and there was one to the Gentiles, and that was Paul. It was the name of the office that Christ gave the original 12. After Judas was found to be a fraud, they replaced him in Acts 1, and Peter gives the qualifications for an apostle in Acts 1 and verse 22. Look at this. This is what it says. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of the, these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. There, there is one of the great qualifications. You had to be a witness that Jesus had risen from the dead physically. And so they had to pick someone, and they picked a man that apparently was there. His name was Matthias. A lot of people think that Paul made a mistake, or that Peter, excuse me, Peter made a mistake in choosing him. 
and that God intended Paul to be the 12th apostle, that is not true. That is not true. Matthias was called. Peter was called to be the leader of the church at that time. He never was uh, rebuked for it. And there were 12 apostles to the Jews. And then God called one for the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. This is Paul talking to Corinthians. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. What was he saying? He said, I'm not like the other apostles. I saw Jesus, but it wasn't during his earthly ministry. It was after it. So when did Paul see Jesus? That's our question. When did Paul see Jesus? Well, three times he saw him, I believe. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember that light shone from heaven? It was Jesus in his full Shekinah glory, knocked him to the earth, blinded him for several days, maybe months, and then said, Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Apparently, Paul had had some uh, conviction. He was a master of the Old Testament. Surely he saw it. And he, God saved him right there on that Damascus road. Then he spent three years with Jesus in the Arabian desert. Why did he do that? Well, all the other apostles had three-year uh, seminary degrees, so apparently Paul had to have one, and he met there, and he met with Jesus. And then, then he, the Bible says and tells us that he was caught up into the third heaven. Well, he probably saw Jesus there. I imagine he did. I don't know why in the world God would call him up there if not to, to tell him some things. And he said he heard wondrous things, things he couldn't utter, and all this stuff. But we know that Paul experienced a personal eyewitness uh, experience with Jesus at least three times in his life. So he's qualified to be an apostle. That's what we're trying to say there. What is the theme of the gospel? I'm going to go through this very fast, very quickly. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Somebody shout amen, all right? It is the good news that sinners like you and me can be reunited with a holy God like Christ. God the Father and His Holy Spirit. God has made a way that filthy, rotten people like Ron Owen can be the son of all righteous, holy God. Can you imagine? How does all that happen? Well, that's what Romans is all about. So let's look at it. Number one, the promise of the gospel. In verse two, it says, which he promised before by his prophets. This isn't a new thing. The Bible says that Abraham, and matter of fact, Paul will bring this out. Abraham was saved by believing God, by faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. David said, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute righteousness. He knew something was different. Jeremiah claimed that all men will die for their own sin and that, uh, that uh, God was bringing a new covenant, which would be the covenant of grace, which has always been the covenant, by the way. No one has ever been saved but by grace. You say, but God had that covenant of works. You obey me, and I'll forgive your sins and all that. Didn't he have that with him? Yeah, that's right. That's right, he did. Matter of fact, that's the way it's always been. That's that, the, the covenant of works has always been also. God, God says, you obey me perfectly, and I'll save you. Guess what? You have broken that covenant. Adam broke that covenant. Eve broke that covenant. Cain broke that covenant. Abel broke that covenant. Seth broke that covenant. Who's next? 
Everybody in all the world has broken that covenant. So you will never be saved by works. You will never be saved by the covenant of works. You better fly to the covenant of grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, glory. Here we go. The person, three and four. Look at verses three and four. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Hey, listen, the, the gospel's all about Christ. The gospel's not even about saving you, to be honest with you. It's about a savior. It's about Christ. Don't get all caught up in you and what God has provided for you. And now he will. He'll tell all these things in Romans, what God has done, what it means, and all you have in Jesus and all these wonderful things. But I want to tell you something. Just like Paul does, let's turn around and say it's all of Christ to me. All I want is to know him. Look at this. The provision in verse 4. What is the provision? The resurrection from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, you and I can be raised. We will not die and go to hell. We will, we will die physically maybe, but one day we will be resurrected to new life in Christ forever and ever. We'll have a new body in a place called heaven and on the new earth and all these things. That's the provision. We'll learn about that. The proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 5, the half, uh, halfway through. For obedience to the faith among all nations. Well, if it was just going to stay in Jerusalem, why would he say among all nations? That's because he's going to call all the rest of us to take it through all the nations. We have the person. Well, first of all, we have the promise, the person, the provision, the proclamation, the purpose Oh, look at this. What is the purpose of the gospel? To save a bunch of people, to, to make a great kingdom? Look, through him we have received grace and we've received apostleship for the obedience of the faith among all the nations for his name. <laughs> for his name. It's for him. It's because of him. It is through him. It is of him. And my friend, it is all for him, Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. And then the privilege in verse 6 and 7. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. This isn't talking about the general call to everybody in the world, which there is. God invites all men to come to him, but there is a special and effective call that only is reserved for the elect for his people, for those that will believe. This is the privilege that this gospel is for those whom Christ has, has paid for with his blood, who has, who has come to redeem. It is for his people. The word gospel appears four times in 20 verses, and it is good news. It is good news. It is good news. Now, some key words, real quickly, real quickly. The word power cannot escape. We'll get to that very quickly. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is the power? What is it that can save me from my sin? What is it that can make me like Christ? What is it? The gospel. Amen. Not fancy lights, not pretty music. Not padded pews, not anything that any evangelistic organization can come up with. The only thing that has a power to convince you of your sin and bring you to Christ is the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of the sinless Son of God on your behalf. Amen. And if you come to Him, He will save you. Amen. If you'll come to Him, turning from your sin, turning to Him in faith, He will save you. 
Then we have the word salvation, saved. It means to be rescued from eternal punishment. And then you're going to be introduced, if you don't know it already, which I know you do, the word faith. It's over and over again. It's talking about faith. Salvation is by faith, not by works. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it is believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, relying on Him, coming to Him. It's hating your sin and self in the world and turning from it and turning to Him and saying, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to you I cling. And then here it is. The word righteousness. The word righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is that which is needed to be saved. You cannot go to heaven if you are a sinner. Now if that didn't just send a shiver of fear down your spine, you weren't listening to me. What shall I do? What shall I do? That's what we ought to be crying. We have no righteousness. The Bible even tells us that the righteousness we have is like filthy rags, putrid, pus-ridden rags. That's what it's talking about. It's nasty, if you understood that phrase. We have no righteousness. Because the righteousness required is God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Well, the righteousness that he speaks about is God's righteousness. Look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You don't get righteous enough to go to heaven by doing righteousness. You get righteous enough by heaven by taking it from God. You say, you mean stealing it? No, you can't steal from God. He gives it to you. Turn to chapter 3. He wraps up all of his talk about sin, and we'll get to it in full. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, this is what he surmises, no flesh will be justified. You are not going to be saved and justified and stand before God on your own deeds. There's no way. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Just imagine yourself groping through the desert, your lips parched, your throat dry, you're about to die of thirst. Your body aches and hurts all over because of the dehydration. The sun has beat down and you're blistered all over. And there's no hope. You're fixing to die. But now, a pool springs up in front of you. And you're saved. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law. That which was killing me. I was in the desert of the law and sin. And now his righteousness apart from the law. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. In other words, I don't care how sinful you are. I heard someone the other day say, you just don't know how sinful I am. I don't care how sinful you are. God came to save you. I don't care how righteous you are. Even God will save self-righteous people. God wants to save you. He 
sent his son into this world and he took your place up on the cross. This is the message of Romans. You should have been crucified. You should have suffered and died. You should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took the place. 